Welcome to Hollywood Unguide, the Bray Wyatt of political podcasts. Season 6, Episode 3, I am your host, David McClement, broadcasting from the Blantyre Free State. And joining me this evening is journalist, activist, Republican socialist, and World Cup winning goalkeeper, it's Connor Beaton. <laughs> Ashley came up with a new joke, I just used the same joke as last week, but it's a good one. Shocking. And introducing the third member of this evening's triumvirate, the other VW, Ungag's warrior poet, Sky's mammy, it's Val Waldron. Good evening. Good to see you. How are you? Did you have a nice weekend? Nice, warm, sunny weekend. What's not to love, except that it kind of does numb the brain a wee bit. So, but, um, Well, talking, nice. of, talking of warm, I was in Edinburgh, not for the reason a lot of people might assume. I was actually in a stag night. Oh. So I was in a pub all day Saturday, round about tea time. I had sweated so much, I was like, felt as if I'd been in a swimming pool. So I thought, I'll need to go back to my single bed dorm in a hostel. Went back, get changed. Towards the end of the night, when I was sweating through that lot of clothes, I remembered that I only brought one change of clothes with me and I had nothing for the next day. And then it got even worse when I got back to the hostel and remembered that hostels don't give you a towel and I only brought a towel either. So I was supposed to be there most of Sunday as well, but I got up first thing in the morning and jumped in the train home. Probably stink. <laughs> Probably stinking the whole carriage, but um, that was my weekend. Um, <laughs> Did you get a carriage all to yourself after all that? <laughs> it wasn't full when I got on, but it was um, empty when I got off. <laughs> Will we fly into our first topic? Sure. Let's do it. Let's get ungagged. The Scottish Government's new licensing scheme has been under intense scrutiny this week. Introduced amidst the backdrop of a rapid rise in the number of Airbnb listings in Scotland and a housing crisis, it requires hosts to display energy performance ratings on listings, have adequate building insurance and public liability insurance, as well as various fire and gas safety precautions. On Tuesday, the Scottish Tories said that they would hold a debate and force a vote in the scheme before the October deadline. This was followed on Wednesday by a letter signed by a total of 37 MSPs, including 31 Tories, um, three frontbench Labour MSPs, two Lib Dems and an SNP MSP, calling in Hamza Yusuf to delay the scheme. Connor, what's your thought? Short-term lets? <laughs> oh, I can't stand the landlord lobby in this country. Um, I think that'll be a widely shared sentiment. I mean, the the... The thing that gets me is that it's not a really a radical proposal. It's not actually talking about, um, you know, shutting the vast majority of Airbnbs in Scotland, in particular Edinburgh, which should be an, a pretty reasonable and very proportionate response to the housing crisis. It's just saying, you know, there are certain requirements that you're going to have to meet. You're going to have to apply for a license. You're going to have to put, um, you're going to meet all the normal safety standards that apply when you're going, when you're renting a flat generally, or, you know, that you expect in a hotel room. Um, you can't just throw someone in your shed and say that that is a reasonable housing condition. Um, and this is something that's been planned for years, and they've already had an extension to the deadline. And now we've got all the short-term let uh, providers up in arms about it. I've seen some of the most ludicrous arguments, including online, 
um, people suggesting that it's uh, a sexist assault on women because women are uh, more likely to be short-term let operators. Uh, everything about the discourse here has been ridiculous. And it's also just, you know, reminded me of a, it's now a routine. The Scottish government announces something. It is the smallest kind of minimal reform to a major crisis. And then the media just gives you constantly criticisms from people who stand to lose money as a result of it, effectively. A small minority of people who stand to lose money. Um, and they just ramp this up until you know it's considered so controversial and so radical that the Scottish government, on some occasions, gets pressured into standing down. I mean, in this case so far, uh, it looks like the Scottish government is standing firm on it, which is good. But I think you know we can't forget it's such a small thing. It's such a small thing in the scale of a huge problem. Um, if we, if we can't actually get licensing through them, we can't do anything at all. Um, and I think landlords and the opponents to the scheme should think really carefully about, you know, we're actually being quite measured here. If you want to take gloves off and have a proper fight over this, then there's much further that we could go. Well, that sounded ominous, Gono. <laughs> I didn't mean to sound so ominous. Val, any thoughts? Yeah, you know, I just kept thinking i'm missing something here what is the controversy about what the hell is it why are they like this and then i realized well no it's just this kind of um basically business again isn't it they do not want any they, they won't budge they just uh, you know and you think in the kind of bigger context of say something like trying to you know bite into land reform you know and this is a drop in the ocean uh, we've been making these changes in our houses we've been we've got fire safety regulations absolutely they really should be doing these things and i mean i presume carbon monoxide etc comes into it these are really important things i just can't believe they're being so stupid basically over it but i guess it's also this kind of very brexity culture against regulations they don't want to be regulated but I just think, you know, this kind of these parties, this party of landowners and the rest just do not want anybody telling them what to do. Um, I, I read quite a, it's quite an amusing sort of wee bit in the National yesterday about a guy that went to stay in um, Alex Cole Hamilton's Airbnb thing. There seems to be a thing now, a shed at the bottom of the garden. Uh, gave it a kind of an okay review, but it wasn't brilliant. But I mean, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about um, I've actually stayed in a, you know one or two of these kind of things recently, like a shed or a converted garage at the bottom of the garden. And you absolutely do. You just don't want these rubbishy old things again. You don't want to feel unsafe. You know. Yeah. Um, the, yeah. The thing about display energy performance ratings. These are. These are up to date these are things that we really should be doing um it's already law that's the other thing it came in in 2022 so i'm thinking this is about um a deadline for getting the licensing applications in is that right october 2023 yeah i mean there's already, extension. yeah there's already been a six months delay and they want uh -huh. another delay but in reality they just don't want it so they keep trying to push to delay it and delay it until you know, circumstances are more favourable that they can get rid of it altogether. Um, well, it's a bit like, um, you know, the deposit return scheme, even gender reform, you know, it's like they just have this uh, willful refusal 
to look at simple regulations and sort of admin stuff and details. And it's just just this mm. stubbornness to do anything to make any changes. There's, there's a totally a pattern between those things that you've mentioned there is that it is very easy for campaign groups with you know with the vested interest they can put a lot of money into it to kind of shape the narrative around that in the media. So for example, um I don't know if you saw the court case I think it was earlier this summer where a group of single um sort of short-term let uh, operators raised funds through a crowdfunder um to to sue City of Edinburgh Council over the detail of their licensing scheme and they were able to just raise this money like nothing. And it's exactly what you see with the opponents of the gender recognition uh bill again able to rely on this vast amount of money coming in that they can use to set up these spurious judicial reviews or they can uh, take out big newspaper adverts. And it's really effective. It's really effective at changing the, but you need to have access to that kind of money. And the thing is that if you're a tenants group or you know LGBT groups, a lot of them just don't have access to those resources. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's complete sabotage as well. You know, asking for delays on the grounds that like, there's been very low levels of applications like Edinburgh and Glasgow have got less than 200 applications between them and there's estimated that there's thousands of Airbnbs operating there and it's a to me it's like no preparing for an exam and then demanding the exam gets postponed because you're not ready for it and it's like well you've deliberately you know discouraged um, your you know, individual landlords and people under their umbrella not to engage in this, not to prepare on the basis that, oh, we'll get it sorted, we'll get it scrapped, or we'll get it delayed. And it's obscene that the government, Scottish government would even consider, consider caving to this. It's, um, like you both said about, like, you know, the dark money and the interest groups, it's like something starts off as vaguely... Cross party consensus based, sensible, um, and then it gets turned into all. This isn't quite which culture war levels of, um, of polarization, but it gets turned into that just because yeah. there's some folk that want to make keep making obscene amounts of money and don't want to have any responsibility. I mean, I kind of believe that there's no regulations in running an Airbnb really at all. For what I can find, um. You know, but if you want to be a landlord, there's regu- there's fairly sensible, no particularly onerous regulations on that. But if you're just doing it on a short term basis, there's nothing. You know, I would like to think mm-hmm. that, um, you know, my oldest daughter's ten, but let's say in ten years' time, if she's going to stay in an Airbnb, some Airbnb somewhere, I'd like to know that the landlord's not a sex offender or something like that. You know, yeah. this is fairly sort of routine stuff that I think if you quiz people on an individual level. They would kind of agree on, but it gets tied up into these interest groups that really don't give a toss about anybody other than can they will this in some way impact their profits? And if the answer is yes, they don't care about anything else. They don't care about how sensible, how reasonable it is. All they want is to make money. Yeah, this idea of um, the amount of does it say about a, a third? of the MPs in this cross-party group were lobbied by Airbnb. I just can't quite get my head around what lobbying actually is. I mean, to me, it sounds like, like kind of bullying, but um, obviously they're, they're, you know, they're powerful, powerful people, lobbyists, so they're, they're not going to shift. But I think my 
fear and I haven't seen it. I haven't seen um, Westminster threatening to step in, but I suppose it's just digging their heels and they're just not going to, they're just not going to cooperate. I don't think it's like bullying when you're receptive to it, I think is the thing. I think too many of these MSPs are probably quite happy to take a mm. free dinner yeah, or yeah. whatever it might be, a, a gift, um, and to listen to Airbnb. But uh, uh, David, you made an important point there about um, not having this regulated at all. And I think the other thing to think of is some of the other parts of this digital disruption economy, which is Uber came in uh, as a, a, a taxi company that doesn't own any taxis, as they're famously described, and disrupted the taxi market in so many cities precisely because they were not actually required to be registered licensed taxi drivers. They just had regular people with their own cars that you could drive around with. And it's exactly that thing that you've said is that there's no accountability in terms of who these, who the drivers might be. Um, there are safety concerns with that. Um, there's a whole issue in the well, in, in the UK, it tends to be that you still need to have a taxi license to be an Uber driver. So in various cities in Scotland where there is Uber, Uber is effectively operating as an app that will help you get a licensed taxi driver. Uh, and it's not really any different from any other taxi company, except that for some reason, the company based in San Francisco gets a big chunk of it. Um, but I think there's, it's instructive to think about the fact that people did take a stand uh, there. They did say, okay, we're not actually going to let unregulated, unlicensed taxis um, go on our streets. And most people would say that that's probably actually quite reasonable. Mm -hmm. And then when you apply the same logic to Airbnb and say that you would actually need to have a license and uh, meet certain standards and certain requirements in order to be a licensed Airbnb host, um, somehow we've managed to have that twisted into this is a horrible uh, <laughs> intrusion on property rights. It doesn't make any sense. Also, I, I don't know why MD wants to stay in Airbnb. I've... I heard about how it was really cheap and things like that, but any time I've went to look, it's been, like, at very least as expensive as any hotel I've looked at. And sometimes you click on it and you think, oh, so much a night, that's quite reasonable. And then you get to the end and it's like, oh, plus the cleaning fee, plus the, you know, this fee and that fee. And, and then you're looking at the terms and you're like, wait a minute, why am I paying £200 on top of what I'm paying for a cleaning fee? And then they want me to do the dishes and wander on the, <laughs> on the bed sheets. And it's like, you know, mm. let's just stay in a hotel and pay the same money and no have to do all these things. Val, do you remember how much Alex Cole Hamilton's one was quoted as? Was it 130 uh, a night or it something? Was, it was over that. Was it about 180 a night or something like that? It was something absolutely ridiculous anyway. But, uh, had, uh, bed yeah. full of spiders. Yeah, bed full of spiders, yeah. <laughs> but, but very good tea and coffee making stations, so uh, that's all right then. <laughs> I think that the thing, David, you're talking about the cost, uh, I think it used to be cheaper and it is now no longer really cheaper, but it's so established it's hard to get rid of. And that is actually the model that a lot of these um, digital disruptors are using. It tends to be they get bankrolled by venture capital. They don't have to worry about turning a profit at all. Um, for the first few years because they just get all this money pumped in and their whole thing is we're going to undercut the existing regulated providers of these services until we've achieved such a huge market share that we can jack up the price and get away with it because there's so we've, we've hollowed out the alternatives uh, that's that's the model that's what they've tried to do like uber again you know california what they've tried to do is drive regulated taxis out of business so then everyone's relying on uber and then they put the prices up and they get a huge cut um 
and you know that's the, that's the thing we've got to avoid this race to the bottom. Yeah, it's like this disrupting an industry, but ultimately they just morph into what the original disrupted. Yeah, but but deregulated is the critical yeah. part. It's just this backdoor deregulation. It, it does seem though that Hamza Yusuf is going to stand firm in this. He was quite categorical, yeah. which is unusual for any politician. Like usually, they give try to give themselves some wiggle room, but he seems to be really putting his foot down in this. Is that encouraging to you? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, he seems to be, uh, I mean, I know they tried to strangle him at birth, basically, after the, the horrendous leadership election, but he just seems to, I'm getting the impression anyway, that he's kind of getting stronger and he's, he's kind of just battering on through. He's, I think he's doing okay. Go on. I mean, I think we'll We'll see. Uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that he holds firm as he's indicated that he will on this. Um, and I'm interested to see, of course, what the programme for government holds in terms of the wider measures. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I think this is a, a Scottish government that came out, was on the back foot when he started as First Minister because there was this immense amount of pressure to roll back on various things and the, the Scottish government did roll back on various things. And now it needs to draw the line and actually go back on the offensive and say we're going to do this and that and actually be have have some measurable achievements that we can um we can talk about because ultimately I, I think that's the thing is like there will always be if you want to confront the serious problems in Scotland like around poverty and around um in the context of the housing crisis even homelessness you you are going to come up against powerful interests who are going to wage a campaign against you in the parliament in the media they're going to have a lot of money to do that with and if you can't stand up to that, even over something as small as this, then you can't you can't do anything. Um, so it is it is a test, and I hope hope he succeeds. Yeah, yeah. Just another couple of bits about the scheme that I read as well, which shows the you know the kind of campaign against it, how disingenuous a lot of it is. In fact, all of it. Um, you know, it's ad- it's going to be administered by local authorities. They'll be setting things like the fee and how they use this. So in areas like Edinburgh, where it is a, a massive problem, like people are living in closes where every other flat is a Airbnb and they've got stag and Hindu uh, parties in their clothes every weekend, they'll obviously be able to say it at a level that um, takes into account the sort of social problems it's bringing. All the claims that will decimate rural areas, if there's surely, surely uh, you trust the local authority not to just randomly hike it so high that it's going to put all these places out of business that is not causing the same sort of issues. Um, and also they're allowing people to continue a trade while they wait for their licence. So yeah. it's not a case of that come October the 1st, um, all the all the people who have deliberately not applied for the licence are going to be you know forced to close down. They're, as long as they put their application in, they'll still be able to continue as normal until that comes back. Um. So the sort of cataclysmic predictions that the um, Airbnb lobby is is pushing is just nonsense. And things like 66% of um, Airbnb owners have considered closing down altogether. And it's like, well, considered, that word considered is doing an awful lot of heavy uh, lifting there. You know, I considered becoming an astronaut. It was never really something that was likely to happen. Um, so, 
well you, you can you can only really say well good if you know if there are dangerous substandard properties hopefully it's going to attract people who are willing to take some responsibility yeah and and these flats and homes are only going to vanish because they stop being airbnbs either they'll be sold and come back into the property market or they'll become long-term lets which is positive and yeah. will help the housing crisis and is obviously part of what the policy is meant to do so Fingers crossed. It seems like it's the right policy in terms of direction, even if Connor wants something far more extreme and terrifying by the sounds of it. Um, but, yeah, it's just, it's like all these things just playing over and over again, like lockdown, you, you can't do right for doing wrong. You know, the pubs uh, wanted to stay open and the businesses at airports etc etc it's just all I mean so I think Humza Yusuf kind of knew what he was getting into there uh, and it's just gonna it's a theme that's just gonna continue nobody wants to be regulated that's the thing uh, moving on to our second topic of the evening the Home Office has again rejected cross-party calls to introduce safe drug consumption rooms despite a major report recommending the department change tack to save lives. In a report from Westminster's Home Affairs Committee, uh, the government was urged to press ahead with trials for safe consumption rooms, like the one proposed for Glasgow, as part of a raft of recommendations to overhaul UK drug policy. But the suggestion was rejected out of hand by the Home Office, responsible for setting the UK's drug laws, with the department insisting that there was no safe way to take illegal drugs. Val. Well, there absolutely is, if you like. I mean, because the whole kind of, um, typically like the kind of whole drug consumption thing would also bring along with it, you know, like sterile injecting equipment, counselling services, etc. You know, it's going to be more regulated and it is safer for people. Um, but I mean, essentially, there is no good reason apart from political spite and sort of criminalising ideology to refuse this approach. And we know it's not new, it's something that Alison Thewlis has been fighting for for quite a long time as well. Um, I'll just say, that, so where's the duty of care from the UK government to look after its people? Basic needs, housing, shelter, hospitals, it's pretty basic stuff. Um, and as I say, plus the other stuff that goes with it. Um, so I would say it's it's one of these things. We're, we're in a situation now where we're seeing quite a lot of, well, we're seeing some Labour MPs, councillors, etc., starting to really challenge you know, what Keir Starmer's approach. Uh, I, I just think it's really important that we kind of dig in, bring these people along with us. It, and the whole cross-party thing is just really important. These, these are important things about, these are progressive issues that we just need to keep working on. I mean, the first thing I would say is to anyone that's not already doing so, um, you should be following what Peter Crycant's been saying on the topic. Uh, he's been campaigning um, specifically for bringing in these kind of supervised drug consumption rooms. And he's actually, I think, just today opened an interesting discussion on Twitter about what kind of language we should use to describe these, because there's so many different terms that have been used. One of the ones that I actually quite like is overdose prevention site, because I think that gets really to the heart of what these are actually for, which is saving people's lives. Um, but yeah, he's been campaigning for years and memorably a few years ago set up a mobile overdose prevention site out of a old ambulance 
and operated it himself um, and showed in practice that it saves lives because there were people who had overdoses that, you know, he, he and other volunteers were able to administer naloxone. There are people here, so hopefully still here, who wouldn't have been there otherwise. It's not an academic thing. And it's just like, for me, it seemed like anyone who was vaguely on the left or progressive, it's I, I took it for granted that you would accept that drug decriminalization and safe consumption rooms are things that save lives and that should be supported. And now, because seemingly of it becoming a constitutional issue, you have things like the Scottish Labour Party saying firmly they believe there should be a UK-wide framework around drugs, even though that kills people. Um, and of course, I'm the unguided correspondent from Dundee, uh, which I think, you know, for a very long time has been the drug death capital of Europe. I think we've maybe lost that title to Glasgow this year. I'm not sure. Um, this is a serious problem in our country, and it is linked so closely with uh, with poverty. It's uh, really interesting seeing some of the research that actually links this. Um, if you look at the age profile of people who die in drug overdoses. It's specific generational cohorts that become um, associated with drug deaths. And a lot of the, the recent spike of drug deaths has actually been people who were using drugs um, in the 1980s. And there's a whole link to the unemployment that there was in Scotland as a result of deindustrialization. It really is like this tragic expression of um, you know all the scars and work-class Scotland. And we like the very bare minute, like we, there's such a huge thing we need to do to, to stop that happening again, as in we need to pr make sure that, that we don't have poverty in this country, that we don't have generations of working class people who are so adrift that they fall into um, harmful things like drug addiction. But short of that, the very least we can do the harm reduction things, which is decriminalization and opening uh, supervised drug consumption rooms. That is the bare minimum. And the fact that that is too far for the Home Office and that that is too far for sections, like the vast majority of the Labour Party, is just a complete indictment of both of those things. Yeah, particularly what Anna Sarwar said. Uh, you mentioned about wanting a consistent approach across the UK, and it's like, what is the point in devolution at all? If you've just got to take that... I mean, does that can that not just apply to anything? Mm -hmm. If... If that can apply to anything, surely it can apply to um, the fact that Scotland has such a, a higher incidence of drug deaths. Is that not reason that Scotland should have should take a different approach, a more radical approach? Uh, you know, in order to save lives, you know, like this idea of oh well, you know, any deviation from Westminster might might be seen as some kind of concession in the. Um, constitutional battle is is it's it's worth it uh, to people dying is worth it in order to keep that you know that consistency even though when they want to they'll use the fact that Scottish drug deaths are much drug deaths are much higher to beat the Scottish government and Scotland as a country at times, um, but then sabotage any kind of new approach that we might want to take to try and do something about it. It's, it's quite a sickening sort of attitude, yeah, which shouldn't surprise us with the Home Office. I mean, everything about the Home mm -hmm. Office is pretty sickening, but this mm -hmm. is just another example of it. 
I think as well, Connor talking about Peter Kraken as well. I mean, and he, he is a good guy to follow with that because he sort of cuts through the politicised propaganda. He's neither SNP nor Labour, and he's certainly not a Tory. Um, and he's also pointing out that um, you know, it's, it is a case of, sort of deprived areas. And it, the, the, the number he mentioned was like 16 times higher from communities across the north of England as well. Uh, which isn't um, convenient to be <laughs> discussed, you know, in our media. But um, you know, we, we still that, that that doesn't undermine the fact that that it's something we have to take very very seriously. Any drug death is, you know, wherever it's from, is is a really important thing. So, yeah, he's a really good guy to to keep an eye on. I think also what's been useful about Peter's work, um, or or, re or rather some of the discourse that he's involved in is there are voices in like the Tories are very heavily lobbying sections of um you know drug uh, recovery advocacy organizations etc to be against the SNP position so the Tories have in their mind a solution to this thing which is they've got this right to recovery bill that they're putting through the Scottish Parliament which is saying that everyone has to be guaranteed for example a bed in a, rehabil in a rehabilitation facility and there's this huge emphasis on rehab 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 and they're trying to um, undermine voices in the third sector and voices in the advocacy sector who are saying well we actually want decriminalization not necessarily instead but as well like decriminalization is an important part of this the Tories are like not having that at all and they are totally kind of lobbying and trying to cozy up to certain figures who seem more open to that narrative and so we've seen um you know i don't, I don't want to name specific charities or individuals but peter's like highlighted on twitter cases where it's people who've been involved with advocacy for a long time who have previously voiced support for decriminalization now parroting tory lines about how decriminalization is a distraction uh, and it's uh, really sinister to see how the tories have actually tried to manage to co-opt parts of that in favour of their political line and it's entirely to just have a go at the SNP but it goes against everything that we know from research and everything that is like the international trend towards harm reduction and drug decriminalisation um, and yeah I think Peter is a really authoritative voice who's actually getting really good mm -hmm. at highlighting that he's not uh, one of these, he is a very fiercely independent person who's not stuck in trying to cozy up to everyone, he does actually call out the people who are part of the problem Definitely. And also, excuse me, also, I think we have to remember that the Tories are, look at their ratings in Scotland at the moment, they're really rapidly falling. They're like cornered rats at the moment. They're clutching at anything. They've got a couple of things they're not going to let go of at the moment. Yeah, I mean, the Tories are pushing this thing that as if it's somehow either or. You either have to be in favour of expanse, an expansion of um, rehab facilities or in favour of these, you know, harm reduction measures. And it's like, it, they're the same thing. You know, not everybody's ready to go into rehab. You know, people are using drugs for a reason. Every, I used to, I used to work in um, addictions and everybody that was using drugs or alcohol, alcohol was, they, they had a very specific reason for doing so, usually some kind of trauma. People aren't always ready to go into rehab at that point. Harm reduction means when they get to that point, it keeps them alive so they can get to that point. They're ready to go into rehab, ready to deal with their issues. 
and maybe uh, move into recovery. But they can't move into recovery or use any of these rehab beds if they die before they're, they're mentally in a place mm -hmm. where they can even think about that. Um, so it's, again, I use the word sickening again. It's sickening to use that kind of progressive line. The Tories, as if the Tories, if the Tories ever expanded sort of um, <laughs> things like rehabs and recovery and any kind of social yeah. care, and, and yet now they're trying to put, paint themselves as the champions of this and paint anybody that's in favour of, um, you know, liberalising drug laws is somehow that they're against that by default. Like I said, it's no either or. You know, I don't think anybody that's in favour of um, decriminalisation is saying, aye, and we should shut any rehabs and forget about that. You know, it, it, just, it just doesn't exist. That point of view isn't real. Nobody holds it. Yeah. And Ireland right now is having a lot of discussions around this as well. Um, and they are going to open the first um, safe injection site is going to be opened in Dublin early next year, I believe. And currently they have actually an ongoing national conversation about drug use and what the law should be in policy and practice. They've got a citizens assembly on drugs currently taking place. Um, which you know, I don't know what the recommendations of it will be. I know that it's very likely, um, or did it already report? I can't remember now. But like a, a big theme of it has been decriminalisation. But they've been able to confront this in a very open, non-party political way. That is probably a model for how we could approach those discussions in Scotland. And it's also instructive, I think, for Anna Sarwar. If you're talking about a UK-wide context, there's no hard border between Ireland North and South, and clearly the North is still going to have UK drugs law applying and south of the border, they're going to maybe move in the direction of decriminalisation. They're certainly going to open an overdose prevention site. Um, and you know, those two things can coexist. Why can't Scotland have a different drugs policy? Why is the concept of devolving drugs policy to Scotland um, within the UK seen as this great impossible feat when you know that is effectively going to be the situation on the island of Ireland very soon? That is going to be north and south, no border, but different drugs policy. Also, the idea that safe consumption rooms are like um, are like a step too far. I mean, we've we've had needle exchanges for decades, so it's really only a natural progression in that. If you accept the argument that you should make sure that um, people in addiction of get clean uh, needles to use in order to um, stop the transfer of diseases and and things like that, then then why is it suddenly a big leap to say? Well, if you're going to give them clean needles, why don't you let them use under medical supervision to keep them safe? I, you know, it, it doesn't seem like that by a leap for me, but for some reason it's treated like some kind of, you know, something that's just beyond the pale, according to the Home Office. Yeah, there seemed to be some sort of twisted idea that it's consumption facilities are going to encourage drug use, you know. Um I think there's a lot of nimbyism as well with it all, and it, and it's not just that they're um, that they kind of they don't want to pursue it, you know. Like when the Scottish government and Glasgow City Council, I think, pushed forward with this a couple of years ago, you know, they went to great effort to block it to the point where <laughs> it eventually uh, came apart because I think it was the council couldn't guarantee that with they were employing people that they wouldn't end up getting arrested because the government were basically saying they would consider criminal act and there was no guarantee that 
they would be prosecuted for that. So, you know, how how can the council how could the council proceed because they're effectively were going to be um, offering people jobs and telling them, by the way, you might wind up in jail for doing this job, working for the council and getting jailed for it. <laughs> Yeah. There is the, the uh, one of the things that I think maybe wasn't explored enough at the time, which has come into some of the stuff recently. So I think people have seen the announcement that in Scotland, um, drug possession wasn't going to be prosecuted anymore, you know, for small amounts. And that came about by a direction from the Lord Advocate. Um, so even though it's still a crime, there's a certain degree to which prosecution policy could maybe change in a progressive way and unlike in some other European countries right now the Lord Advocate is appointed by the Scottish Government and sits kind of as a cabinet member not really, it's actually been the, the source of some <laughs> discussion and debate as to whether this should be more independent but right now it's not that independent, there is effectively a degree of political control over prosecution policy making and I would have liked to have seen a more coordinated push for saying we're going to appoint a really radical Lord Advocate who is going to be willing to uh, say we're not going to prosecute people involved in harm reduction facilities around drug use and I think you know it may well have been that if that happened the UK government would step in and take legal action and remove them from office and all the other things that they've done when the Scottish government has kind of pushed the letter of devolution but also we need to be constantly pushing that letter of devolution. I think we need to be constantly provoking those kinds of reactions from the UK government because that's actually what really makes clear the nature of the union and also puts in really clear terms, this is what we would be doing if it wasn't get, getting blocked. Um, I think it's, much, it's a better position to be in being actively prevented from doing the right thing than talking about how you would do the right thing if, if we could. And so if we could have had a better link up, I think, between Glasgow City Council leaders, Dundee City Council leaders, who were also talking about this at the time, and some kind of strategically minded people in the Scottish government, I feel like we could have pushed that further. Um, but we've got to deal with the situation that we're in now, which is, um, you know, something's got to break and there's increasing recognition among MPs, even south of the border, that something's got to change. And we need to think about how we can you know, throw that even wider open. And and if it takes, you know, people are people doing the Peter Crycant thing again of actually mm -hmm. setting these things up on a effectively guerrilla basis and uh, and daring the police to do something about it. Obviously there's a great deal of personal risk involved in that and you can't expect mm -hmm. anyone to do it. You know, you can't order a council employee, like you say, David, to do it. But you know, it is a matter of life and death. So something has to happen. I hadn't appreciated that he wasn't doing it anymore. Um, was that just pre legal pressure? Was that so? Uh, I, I wouldn't want to recount everything because I couldn't do <laughs> justice. Um, I think it was a number of things, including personal reasons, that meant he decided right. not to do it anymore. I don't think it was sustainable the way that it was set up. Mm -hmm. um, and he's now working with a charity that is specifically campaigning for these to be rolled out on a obviously a professional basis. And I think this charity is actually saying they can deliver the service. They would be happy to be a provider of these kinds of services, um, provided that there was funding made available in a legal framework, which is you know eminently reasonable. And of course, a, a registered charity can't break the law without risking its charitable registration yeah, and its accounts, absolutely. et cetera. Um, it's mm -hmm. a, a difficult thing for them. Um, but I think, you know, he's done a really important thing in showing it can be done 
yeah literally doing a, a, a proof of concept uh, at great personal risk um and yeah and i think it's a, it's up to more people now you know he can't do everything and some other people have to help out yeah you know this coincided this week because there was the release of them um, drug deaths and alcohol deaths um in scotland for last year drug deaths actually went down slightly and alcohol deaths went up but all I heard in the media was, I mean, both changes were sort of within kind of, I don't want to say margin for error when you're talking about people's lives and deaths, but they were both marginal changes up and down. And I never heard anything about the drug deaths in the media, but the alcohol deaths, when previous years it's always been the drug deaths have led, they've, they really pushed the alcohol thing. And it was like, again, like aspects of media that is just so cynical that just because you want to attack the Scottish government, you're going to use something as a, a, raw as that is, yeah. you know, and there was, even the BBC had like Lib Dime style bar charts. Did you see that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Where it was like this huge like bar chart that mm-hmm. represented like 1,200, yet the 1,000 mark was like 20% from the bottom of the, the pie chart. And it's like, why are we playing games like that about stuff you know, that literally is about life and death. Um, I, I mean, I know, yes, we do need to keep pushing what we could do if we were independent, but uh, there just feels to be more and more. I, I don't know, it seems to have come around the time, like you get the gender recognition thing was given away on a plate to Westminster. It just feels as though the door's getting pushed open to just take nobody nobody wants it it's almost like right you know if we can trash devolution if we can trash scotland it feels more linked to that now um then independence is going to be off the table uh, you're just getting more of a, a sense that um at one time i think you know it was something like about 90 percent of people in scotland were vote you know were pro devolution but it seems to be an awful lot less than that now i would say there's quite a, a push against it from certain quarters and I do think they're using things like, as you say sort of quite cynically using the deaths of people to, to do that Any thoughts, Connor? Before we move on um, Well, I was going to say, not for me to defend the BBC, which I don't often do but you make this point about the coverage of the respective issues. When the drug deaths report came out the BBC actually, to their credit, ran a piece online about drug decriminalisation and whether that could help in Scotland. And it very much, I mean, it was obviously they had both sides, but this, the evidence that they quote actually speaks for itself. And it says the, the Portuguese model, for example, of decriminalisation makes perfect sense. I was quite surprised and pleasantly surprised to see the BBC actually dealing with something in that context, you know, basically saying actually what the Scottish government is saying here is, is correct. And, um, you know, fair enough, they don't. Uh, take that very often but um, in terms of the alcohol deaths issue and can I just say David you've picked very cheerful topics for us all to discuss this <laughs> <Yeah>. this week <laughs> I've only been ordered to make the last one up, up beating cheerful so it's all yeah. doom and gloom before that good um, yeah again it, there's so much deflection here and blame and it all serves to kind of obfuscate the really critical thing which is these are an indictment not just of, you know, um, 
you know, maybe various services that, are, that cover those things specifically. It's also an indictment of the economic system as a whole that leads to these problems in society. Um, alcoholism in Scotland, you know, Scotland's got a relationship with alcohol that people think the solution is things like, you know, min minimum unit pricing. So the suggestion that if the price was higher, people wouldn't buy it as much. And maybe it's had some impact, but I mean, you can look at all these countries in Europe uh, where alcohol is far cheaper and they don't have as much of a problematic relationship with it. And you have to recognize that there's some sort of social and cultural basis for this. And I think in Scotland, it's very similar to we have with drug issues, which is it is a respite for a lot of working class people from, uh, you know, unhappy lives and um, these fuel all kinds of dependency issues and you know it's so easy to say oh actually it's only because of one particular government minister is really incompetent and of course we wouldn't have had thousands of people dying every year for decades if it wasn't for this one person but obviously it's a deep-rooted issue and um everything in british politics is geared against uh dealing with things in that kind of way um it's all about personalities and parties and kind of scratching the surface of things because nobody wants to open the door to complete economic change but maybe that's just me and now a word from our sponsor our sponsor this week is sense of nature pet service based in central scotland sense of nature gives you a hands-on personalized experience with a variety of exciting creatures from snakes and skunks to tarantulas and turtles Sense of Nature has something for everyone. They offer sensory sessions, one-to-one -one and group sessions, educational encounters for children of all ages, and they are available for private events upon inquiry. Animal welfare is at the forefront of everything they do, and if appropriate, a risk assessment can be carried out at no additional cost prior to your booking. To get 5% off your next booking with Sense of Nature, quote Holyrood Unguide 5 at time of booking. To contact Sense of Nature, you can do so by email on sense.of.natureinquiries at outlook.com. You can also find them on most social media platforms by searching for Sense of Nature. Next topic. This one's a wee bit more upbeat. The Tory MP and Boris Johnson loyalist Nadine Doris has resigned her common seat and accused Rishi Sunak of demeaning his office by speaking out against her. Doris stood, uh, announced her intention to quit Parliament when Johnson stood down as an MP in early June. However, she caused confusion by refusing to resign formally and irritation by continuing to draw an MP's salary. Justifying her actions, she said that she was waiting for an explanation as to why Johnson's proposal that she should get a peerage was blocked. Sorry to see the back of old, old nads, Connor. <laughs> no, not at all. Um... I think the thing I found really funny was, uh, you know, she was tweeting about her new job, as in the appointment that she took under this archaic Westminster system in order to formally resign her seat. Uh, I, I mean, yeah, I, I, the, the, the less I say about her, the better, because I don't really think there's anything more worth greatly reflecting on. But I also think this... Um, is a great time to talk about how daft it is that in Westminster they maintain this fiction that you're not actually allowed to resign your seat and so they have to make up this whole pantomime around the process of doing so uh, to kind of maintain the pageantry of this hundreds of years old institution um, 
Yeah, I, I just find that really funny. Yeah, I mean, I think we spoke about this in a previous podcast, and until yeah, then, I'd, ne- I'd never heard of... I just assumed they resigned. I'd never heard of this idea of them getting appointed to the Royal Society of Beekeepers or whatever it was. Um, Val, you going to miss Nadine? Yeah, well, yeah, no. Um, she's just, am I allowed to say on air that she is just a ridiculous grifter in the mould of Johnson, Trump, and that guy Fabricant, who's a great name for somebody you couldn't make him up. And you think, well, you know, what are they for, these people? Um, she is, yes, obviously she's very upset about her her um, her knighthood, etc. Um, but what I think is quite interesting is the fact that she's making out that Boris, I don't never call him John, that Boris Johnson was some kind of um, decent old Tory. I mean, it was a bit the most populist thing, and the, the first big populist thing to make a splash in the Tory party. And also the fact that, you know, this, uh, I mean, they're all awful. I wouldn't, I wouldn't defend any of them. They're awful people, awful people. But uh, the fact that others are being blamed for um, him losing his power, etc. They did it themselves. I mean, it was basically the handling of, sort of political scandals that brought them down and brought their their uh, majority down. And she's, she's very upset about the fact that Rishi Sunak is not elected either. You know, I think that that's a, a, a big deal with her. Um, I mean, this book, this I was reading, what was it, the... It's going to be a seismic fly-on-the-wall account of how the saviour of the Conservative Party became a pariah. Um, <clears throat> well, at the end of the day, um, I think most people just think, well, they're all pariahs. You know what? She's not going to bring the Tory party down because it's just like yawn, you know. it's it's Her efforts and her book are going to fall into some kind of abyss, just marked more Tory filth. Um, they, they just they don't bring each other down. They survive, you know. They've been used to it. They've gone through. I'm not saying every one of them, but the culture they've gone through, um, boarding school together, that they're family with each other. You know, they just they they prop each other up. She'll she'll get over it. She'll find another grift somewhere, and and she'll move on. But yeah, another another hideous Tory grifter. Do we are we happy to see the back of her? Yeah, why not? I'm sure there'll be another one on the way. I mean, there is something weirdly admirable or devotion to Boris Johnson. Like, I don't think I've ever seen like an an MP so like publicly dedicated to like a particular sort of um, leader like that. Like in terms of, she seems to hate Sunak more than us, and that's really saying something. <laughs> like, she seems to genuinely despise him, like on Boris Johnson's behalf. And I'm sure Boris Johnson's got a lot of things to say behind doors a bit Sunak but you know she just comes right out and just like tries to go for him at every opportunity and he actually resigned from parliament like because our great heroes done it is again you know for such a grifter it's weird that she's like not just sitting tight till the next election at the very least um, but maybe she thinks she'll make more, more of a splash for her book if she which I think is getting held up for legal matters, so God knows what she's putting in it that's that's terrifying the lawyers. Especially considering they just jacked up the um, payment to MPs 
who step down uh, or lose their seats at an election. Uh, I think I saw that they're increasing that payment, and she's not going to benefit from that because she's. Is she not? Because I, I heard somebody speculating that that's why she waited so long. Was because this was no in I, the pipeline. I think, I think I think that payment only applies if you're standing down or lose your seat at, at the general election. So I don't think she actually stands to benefit from it. Which maybe shouldn't. Maybe nobody told her. <laughs> Um, you know, maybe well, she didn't get. I don't know. Maybe she, maybe the paperwork's no one yet. Maybe maybe she hears that <laughs> she'll she'll grab the letter back. But um, I did have a wee look about because maybe she's going to go back to writing her books, and I've got some cracking quotes from her book. Oh no! Oh no! Are these the like romantic. So, some of them. Some of them. I, I I'd be too embarrassed to read out to be honest, but some of them are just weird. There seems to be a, these, a, weird, a weird obsession get, with Ireland. When was it? You can oh. get to this podcast put in a weird category on all the podcast <laughs> apps. No one in their right mind ever had a bad word to say about a potato. <gasps> what? <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> oh my goodness. He might not be. He, he, he might have been about to have sex for the first time in almost two years. He might have been angry and have lost all reason, but he wasn't going to spill the Guinness. Oh, <laughs> oh no, that's horrible. <laughs> One of our own has been murdered in a graveyard, had his dick cacked off and fed to a cat. We have no idea who did it. Jeez, oh. Wait, how did they know it was a cat? <laughs> that raises well... more questions. <laughs> Do you know that kind of puts her letter into context now? She's <laughs> she's just ridiculous. I just I was going to look up her her letter again, her resignation letter. I just didn't have the stomach for it. But oh, it's absolutely oh, it's, it's funny. It's just ludicrous. I mean, there's other quotes here that I just would be in too biased to read it because I'm absolutely filthy. Good. <laughs> but... Well, David, I look forward to hearing your audiobook. Two and a half million copies these books have normally have sold. I mean, Jeez, oh. makes you think. Maybe maybe that where all the dark money is going. They're just going to buy her books to drop her up. That's it. That's just <laughs> like the, the Amazon charts. Just like the grifters, um, crowdfunders. <laughs> well, goodbye, Doris. We hardly missed you. Yeah. On to the final topic of this evening. Um. Hamza Yusuf hailed the Yes Movement's rededication to the cause of independence as thousands turned out to the Edinburgh March and Rally. The First Minister said the number of people who attended the event, hosted by Believe in Scotland and Yes for EU, was above expectations. First Minister told the audience that Scotland is suffering from a cost of the union crisis and independence is needed more than ever. Did anybody go, first of all? No. No, I didn't. No, I didn't, even though I wasn't. Edinburgh, as I previously mentioned. What are people's thoughts, though? I can't remember who, whose turn it is to go first. Is anyone interested? Well, I, I mean, your... yeah, do you know, it's interesting because this kind of crept up on me. I was, I was used to the idea that I would never consider thinking about going to an indie march again, um, that it's all an AOUB thing, they've ruined them. Um, they're no longer, you know, in the, the horrible speeches and the horrible speakers. 
And then this kind of comes out the blue. I get mixed feelings about it. I mean, it, I'm going to use a horrible phrase, excuse me, but it is what it is. <laughs> it is actually just something for uh, independent supporters. It's not going to bring people on board. It's flags. Hey, it's more flags. It places as nationalists, as all that stuff. Um, but on the other hand, um, I think the general public out there were seeing how the marches had kind of petered out to hardly anything and had sort of thumbed their nose at us and said, right, that's the independence move, movement dead. Uh, and, and even if it just makes people kind of sit up again and think, no, all right, they're still there, or even people who had kind of started floating over towards no to sort of think, yeah, this isn't such a bad thing, you know, maybe it's still OK. Um, so, yeah, it's good in that respect. Um, we're still around. And I think it was good that Humza went because um, it's a wee bit healing there to some extent um, because... Um, obviously, we don't ever want to work with any kind of bigots, but I think there are people in the fringes that have begun to kind of think maybe the SNP aren't dead or lost or whatever. Um, and I, I very much liked what, um, uh, what's that? Oh my goodness, Lorna Slater said that this we what we want is the Scotland of Kenmuir Street, not Downing Street, and that is really important. And that is a whole sort of that speaks to people that are not maybe yesers or whatever. That's what we really need to do. Um, the EU thing, it's caused a lot of unhappiness for a lot of people who are on the left, lexiteers, you know, this is upsetting them a great deal. And they've also not been asked to speak. So, oh, a lot of huffy people out there and quite a few of the kind of Albadite type people, they're more into EFTA, I believe. So, um, yeah, we know that business in Scotland is far from radical, but... You know, it's just a thing. It's a spectacle. And on the whole, I think, yeah, that was fine. That was fine. Yeah, I feel as if it's kind of reclaiming these kind of marches a wee bit um, from the more unsavoury elements that kind of took them over. Um, Connor, do you think it's a mistake to tie independence this close to EU membership? Oh, I'll, I'll say yes. I think I did touch on that at the last podcast that we did as well. I don't, I don't, so I, I should clarify firstly, I'm not a Lexiteer myself, you know, I, I, I never went in for that um, view of what was going to happen after the Brexit referendum. But I think to me in 2014, we had a really powerful argument for why Scotland should be independent that was based on mounting a certain degree of opposition to the austerity agenda, the Tory government at the time, um, making this point about the democratic deficit and the fact that Scotland was having austerity imposed on it without even having given it an electoral mandate. Obviously, lots of places where you can oppose austerity and unfortunately people have voted for it. But in Scotland at that time, we are in this position where it was being imposed. Um, and it became this expression of all the ways in which people were unhappy with the institutions of the UK. And I think it's valid to make the point post-Brexit about fact that so much has changed politically in the UK and the UK has moved to the right massively and so much of this has happened um, in England and as a result of a political discourse that hasn't really unfolded in the same way in Scotland um, and it's I think it's inc incredibly 
valid and important to make that point. What I think is the problem is um, I don't think the main argument for independence in a future referendum, for example, should be we're voting yes because this is a mechanism for getting Scotland back into the European Union. I think that is uh, something we can discuss as part of the campaign, but it's not the main thing for me. The main thing for me is that it's, dem it's a democratic uh, movement and it's addressing the, the glaring um, political issue at the heart of the UK state, which is that this is just not a democratic way of governing these islands. Um, and there are so many things that we want to do differently in Scotland. We want to have a different economic policy. We want to have a more progressive taxation system, whatever. There's all these things we want to have. Um, we don't want to privatise the NHS. We don't want to have nuclear weapons. I think to make it too focused on one thing, which is about a relationship with Europe, which is a thing I think we've probably not really unpacked because, you know, who knows what the process of rejoining will look like. The, the, the thing is, it is a process of negotiation, much like negotiating independence from the UK would be a process of negotiation. We can't give guaranteed outcomes uh, for negotiations. We can say what we'll try and get out of it, but we have to have a degree of openness about the fact that, you know, we can't say everything about what an independent Scotland will look like. So I don't want us to get trapped in the position of, um, of of giving people an expectation that it's all about one thing and that we know what that thing is going to look like in the end. And I think if we're really committed to democracy uh, and opening a democratic movement, then you know the first thing we should do after uh, becoming an independent country is that we need to talk about writing a constitution and we need to be talking about doing that in a way that involves as many people as possible, including people who are unionists, I think is a really important thing to say. I think if you voted no in a referendum, but Scotland's becoming independent, you're going to have to have the right to say what that's going to look like. And, you know, we'll have to have discussions around, you know, the monarchy or the EU or NATO or currency. And all those are things that we're going to have to consider um, kind of separate. Obviously, it's things we're going to talk about when we're campaigning for independence. But I think, yeah, we need a more more acceptance of the fact that independence is about a lot more than just one thing. Um, and that's why I think great that people aren't on a good march. I actually think marches and rallies like that are really important part of politics. Um, but yeah, let's let's not uh, force everyone to, to have the same message. We can accept the diversity within the independence movement. Yeah, I mean, I don't really have a problem for this march. As long as it does become like this kind of you know, tied too closely in every respect um, to the EU. Um, I think it's quite a good shorthand um, in contrast to sort of Brexit Britain um, to kind of like push the EU, pro-EU kind of credentials. And Scotland did vote overwhelmingly stay in the EU. Yeah. Um, so you kind of have the argument that um, there's obviously the democratic argument as part of that. But I th think as a political person and obviously we're all political people and everybody listening to this podcast is, will be a political person I think it's easy to forget how much in the minority we are in terms of a lot of these details and I think for a vast majority of people who are you know they care they're involved in politics they vote but they don't follow it week to week and listen to really good political podcasts like this one <laughs> um, but they they have a kind of political shorthand and, you know, pro-EU, I think, in Scotland is genuinely seen as a sort of vaguely lefty position, even though we all know when you dig into it, there's, you know, the kind of lexiteers, but I don't think they really transfer onto the the national stage, you know, at uh, yeah, that point exactly. of view. 
So as long as we're not tying ourselves too closely to anything, I think it is quite a useful way of, you know, portraying to the wider voting population what independence means, what independence is about. And, you know, I feel as if this has kind of gave people a bit of a boost. Yeah. Um, for the people I know that's been there, for the stuff I've seen online, it seems to be really successful and I think is undercutting some of the influence of these kind of more reactionary, unsavory elements of the independent movement that grabbed, you know, a level of power and influence over the discourse that they never really justified or deserved. Uh, so from that point of view, I think this is um, a good move. And it seems, again, it seems to be a big change in approach coming from the change in leadership in the SNP. So, yeah. Um, I, I agree. And I also think, uh, I mean, as I say, <laughs> you can say it again, it is what it is. It's not something, it's not kind of dictating this is what the independence is. It's really just saying kind of what you're saying there, David, really, you know, um, the EU thing was like our first mandate for a second referendum. People want that. Most people, I think, you know, still do want that probably more than ever. But um, it's not saying this is how it's going to be done but it is also important to make the point that um yeah we want the eu but well whether we want it or not labor don't forget about it you know under labor that's going to be brexit for the foreseeable so it's kind of making that distinction as well um so i mean i don't know how much focus there was on the eu and the speeches etc i didn't actually listen to any of them but um, no, I think it, I think it was important to to kind of tie it to a certain extent, anyway. Well, on that note, I think um, we'll finish for this evening. Um, you can find all our podcasts at leftungag.org as well as written articles. Uh, you can sign up for our free newsletter, or you can listen to our sister podcast, Talking Sense with Cat and Erin. If you've got anything you'd like us to uh, talk about on uh, Hollywood, you can tweet us at underscore ungagged, hashtag Hollywood ungagged, or drop us an email, ungaggedleft at gmail.com, putting Hollywood ungagged in the subject line. And if you want to get more involved with ungagged, uh, get in touch through any of our social media platforms. Uh, you can join our Signal group um, where you can chat to the likes of us. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please give us five stars in whatever platform you use. Val, Connor, thanks for joining me. Everybody that was listening, thanks for that as well. Until then, have fun, be good, and be lucky. Thanks, Thank David. Good night.